Galatians 6, and we're going to start in verse 14 and read down um, to verse 16. There the Apostle Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, the rule is a new creation through the death of Jesus, that's the rule, peace and mercy be upon them even... Your Bible may say, and, I think it should be translated, even upon the Israel of God. Um, One of the most controversial subjects, I think, in evangelicalism as we look at the differences between churches is how we view the relationship between Israel, Old Covenant Israel, national, theocratic, ethnic, covenantal Israel, and the New Covenant Church, believers, Jew and Gentile, in Christ Jesus, Um, how we're to look at those things, how much discontinuity, how much continuity. One of the things that the majority of Reformation history from really Calvin on, and maybe even before Calvin, and then through the Puritans, one of the things that's going to be a marked teaching in Reformed history is that the New Covenant Church is Israel, that the New Covenant Church is the spiritual Israel, the new Israel, the resurrected new creation Israel, that is not a replacement of Old Covenant Israel, but a people who are grafted in, as Paul will say in Romans 11, that some branches are cut off, others are grafted in. So God has really always had one people. Paul will say in Ephesians that now he's made of two men, Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ Jesus. He's broken down the middle wall of separation. He's abolished the enmity. He's taken out of the way all of this separating, dividing, Um, uh, laws that kept Jew and Gentile separate in the Old Covenant. But it's a difficult subject. I started with Galatians um, chapter 6 because the main premise of the book of Galatians is that it's not about being a Jew. It's about being in Christ. The Judaizers are saying you need Jesus and all these Old Covenant Jewish things, starting with circumcision and then the keeping of the whole law. And that Christ is therefore not the great fulfiller and the great sufficient savior, but that you need him and you need these fleshly ordinances. It's a complicated book. It's not an easy book. But it seems to me when Paul says at the end of this book in verse 15, in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avail anything, and Paul essentially says there is no more significance to circumcision whatsoever in the New Covenant. Zero significance to circumcision. In the Old Covenant, it marked you off as part of the covenant people. It separated you from the Gentiles. It was a distinguishing mark. In the New Covenant, Paul says it doesn't mean anything. So for him then to turn around and say, as many as walk according to the rule of the new creation, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God, that if the Israel of God there is not the church, it seems to me strange that he would throw all his arguments out the window that he just argued in the whole book, if it's speaking about Old Covenant Israel. Now, Israel, the, the Hebrew word is not an easy word to understand exactly what it means, but God named Jacob Israel. Israel is not first and foremost a nation, it's an individual. This is something I meant to bring out last week about Jacob being a type of Christ, that Israel, Jacob is the one God names Israel because he wrestled with God, he struggled with God and prevailed, which is kind of what Israel means. Um, he struggled with God and prevailed. 
God changed his name to Israel. Israel was not first and foremost a nation. It was an individual. It was Jacob. I think that's interesting with Jesus as true Israel. Mm -hmm. It again comes back to an individual who is the son of Abraham and whom all the covenant promises are fulfilled. We talked about last week all the meaning there. Um, When you look at the nation of Israel, one of the hang-ups a lot of people have is that they see God's dealing for so many years with this one particular nation, the blessings he conferred on them, all of the, the, the word that he gave to them, all of the promises, all of the dealings, all of the worship, all of the covenants, everything that God did specially for that people. When Jesus is with the woman at the well, he says salvation is of the Jews. There was definitely a, um, a preeminence to Israel in the Old Covenant. They had a special place in the world. Um, it seems to me when we move into the New Covenant, And especially in the life of Jesus, especially during the Messianic ministry, you have a sort of renovation of everything that was. So, for instance, Israel as a nation began with Abraham, technically, and then Isaac and Jacob, and then the tribes, and the 12 tribes stood as the heads, as it were, of Israel, the patriarchal heads, now, when Jesus comes, the true Israel, he, he's fulfilling all things. He's, he's reliving Israel's history. We talked about that last, week, mm-hmm. last time we were yeah. together. Now, what does Jesus do? What is one of the first things that Jesus does in the Messianic ministry that would be reminiscent of what happened to Israel as a nation? He chooses what? Twelve disciples. Mm-hmm. That's not arbitrary. He is reconstituting Israel. This is huge. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, you're going to see the church, I think, I believe, the church, Old and New Covenant, spoken of as the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles, the twenty-four elders, those representative heads representing believers from the Old and the New Covenant. I, I understand this, that language to be symbolic of that. I think it makes a lot of sense. Why does Jesus choose twelve? He is reconstituting Israel. Why does Israel need to be reconstituted? Because they failed. They failed to be the people that God had told them he wanted them to be. I was listening to John MacArthur actually last night. And it's funny because he's not even a covenant theologian. And he said, he was talking about Jesus as the true vine in John 15. And he said that language of the vine was about Israel in the Old Covenant. And he said every time you read about Israel as the vine in the Old Covenant, they're a degenerate vine that doesn't bear good fruit. But then Jesus comes and he says, I'm the, I'm the true vine. And MacArthur comes that close to saying... What he should have said, that Jesus is the true Israel, and then he reconstitutes Israel by choosing 12 apostles who are going to go out and represent the new Israel. Now, there are hints in the Gospels. Travis and I were talking about this today. Uh, Share what you had said about Matthew 8, because I think that's kind of the next step. Matthew 8, a Roman centurion, which is a Gentile person. Uh, a Gentile person says, fill my servant. Jesus says, I'll go to your house and heal him. He says, you don't have to go to my house. You can just speak the words and he'll be healed. So, and Jesus says, out of all the faith of all of Israel, he has not seen faith like this ever. Which I would conclude he should have said something different, but he was trying to make a point here. He says to all the other Israel there, he says, people will come from the east and the west and... I guess E to be a part of Abraham's table directly, which I'm like, it just doesn't make, I mean, it makes sense now that we know, but if you were sitting there, he should have said, 
what a great faithful Gentile, but he said it without saying it. So what he did is I think Jesus was, Jesus basically took Romans, he didn't take, Paul took what Jesus said. But it's Romans 11, basically, you know, it's just a commentary, I think, for Romans 11. People are from another place, east and west. Gentiles are going to come and be put into the line of Abraham. I think it's pretty clear there. Yeah, they, they become part of the family of Abraham. You joke a lot saying, you know, somebody that doesn't believe that the new covenant church is Israel really has no right singing, Father Abraham has many sons and I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. <laughs> um, because, because that is the point, the Abrahamic covenant, which it's interesting. Abraham is first a Jew. I'm sorry, first a Gentile. He is justified as a Gentile. This is Paul's argument in Romans 4. Before there is even a Jew, because Jews are not a race. They, people don't have Jewish blood. They have Adamic blood. There's no such thing as Jewish blood. This is a big mistake a lot of people make. Abraham was from Adam, and Abraham was a Gentile, and he was made a Jew through circumcision, and then his descendants received the covenant sign and were Jews through by right of covenant, not by bloodline. Um, obviously, there's a descendant issue there, and we can touch on that. But I think the big point Travis is making is, is right. It's that the Abrahamic covenant, the goal was always to include Jew and Gentile. And that's why Abraham was justified as a Gentile, so that we as Gentiles are justified just like he was by believing in the Redeemer. He looked forward, we look back. Now, it's interesting because Travis went to Matthew 8, where Matthew said, uh, they'll come from north, south, east, and west, which mm-hmm. is the language of outside Israel, Gentiles from outside. And they'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. And the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, saying the people that thought they had a right to the inheritance, but they rejected Jesus, they're not really Israel. They're getting kicked out. And others are coming and sitting down with Abraham. In Matthew 22, in the parable of the vineyard, mm-hmm. interesting, the parable of the vineyard, since Jesus says, I am the true vine elsewhere, but the vineyard comes out of Isaiah 5, where Israel, uh, where Isaiah says, I will sing a song of my beloved about his vineyard, my beloved planted a vineyard. He thought it would bring forth good grapes. It brought forth wild grapes. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down its hedges. I'm going to destroy it. Jesus tells that same parable in Matthew 22. And notice what he says at the end, because the Pharisees and the scribes, they know that he's speaking about them. They know that he's, he is saying to them, you are about to get everything you think you have taken away from you because you really don't have what you think you have. And notice what he says to him in verse 43. He says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation mm. bearing the fruit of it. Now notice, it's not nations. That's what you would expect if you were thinking that Jesus was about to do something altogether new. A bunch of nations, he's going to give the kingdom out to all these Gentile nations, which is true, right? He is going to, he's saving a people out of all these nations. But Jesus says the kingdom will be taken from you, Israel, and given to a nation singular. What is that nation? It's the true Israel. It's the spiritual Israel. So there's all these little hints in the language in the Gospels about what we see, I think, fleshed out in the epistles in the New Testament. Now, it's interesting because when you come to the book of Acts, and one of the big hang-ups, I think, here for a lot of people that are not covenantal is, they'll go to Acts, and at the beginning of Acts, the disciples say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so they're thinking, the nation of Israel is always going to go on as is. 
And they, they didn't know a world with any kind of worship apart from the worship in the nation of Israel. That's all. I mean, we would be saying the same thing if we live then, because that's all they've ever known. That's all God's done for thousands of years after Abraham. And he, Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but the Father's put all things in his hands. But then he tells them how the kingdom's going to come. He says, but you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Where does he start? Where does the kingdom come first? To Israel, to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting that even in the New Covenant era, era coming on the resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit falls first in Israel. The kingdom comes in Israel. So when people say the kingdom's going to come to Israel, they miss the fact that it came to Israel. It came in the King, Jesus, sending the Spirit in the New Covenant era. And this is amazing. What happens when the Spirit comes? What comes down with the Spirit visibly? like many pillars of fire just like in the wilderness on all of the new covenant people showing that they are the true Israel now you guys will find this in D.A. Carson this is not just covenantal theologians per se D.A. Carson in his commentary um, his commentary on John will talk about the new Israel lots of new scholars will talk about this I think it's something that has probably not received the attention it should receive in the last hundred 120 years in America in the church. And I think it's a shame because one of the implications for this is how do we read our Old Testament? If I'm right that the New Covenant Church believers are Israel in Jesus who is true Israel because he's true Israel, that means that all those promises about restoration that God promised through the prophets, those are spiritually realized for us in Jesus. So when I read the Old Testament, it says God's going to put Judah and, and Israel back together and there's going to be one king over them. I realize that I am part of that. Jesus is my king and I am part of a unified kingdom under him. And that that's spiritual language. Now, some people are going to say you're spiritualizing the text. Yes, I am. Uh, Gerhardus Vossi is one of my favorite theologians. He says that with the coming of Jesus, everything that was earthly and preparatory is eternalized and spiritualized in the new covenant in Christ. You see the apostles doing this. The apostles take Old Testament passages that you would otherwise think were earthly in meaning and they give them an eternal and spiritual realization in Jesus. Just go through the New Testament and take any Old Testament passage and look how they use that. And I think you'll see that Voss is right. Now, this is difficult because, like typology, mm-hmm. you could be wrong and you have, to, you have to be super careful with how you, you understand and, and, and consider those Old Testament prophecies. But one of the big Old Testament prophecies that I think this is clearly seen in the New Testament has to do with the land, the land of Israel. Yeah, sure. The land is what? The inheritance, mm-hmm. right? God promises his people mm-hmm. that he's going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey promises it to Abraham first. The land of Israel is a stepping stone in the restoration of Eden, which was a land flowing with milk and honey. It's actually called the Garden of the Lord in the Prophets. Israel is called the Garden of the Lord. It's a restoration, a stepping stone to the new heavens and the new earth. Genesis and Revelation, there's a garden, there's a garden. In Revelation, the garden is the city, it's Mm -hmm. the temple, it's the world, it's the new heavens and the new earth. It's everywhere. 
Adam was supposed to take the garden out into the world. The garden was just a little place, probably on a mountain on earth before the fall. He was to take it out and cultivate it and turn the world into the garden. Mm -hmm. He failed. Jesus succeeds. Jesus turns the world into the garden. Israel is a stepping stone in that restoration. Now, a lot of people get hung up with the land of Israel. And they say, well, God's going to reestablish that land, and Israel now today, post-1948, is going to get restored, and they get the Gaza Strip, and stop fighting with the Palestinians, and get all their land back, and then Jesus is going to come up and set up an earthly kingdom, and we're going to be glorified and squash all the unbelievers that aren't. They wouldn't say that, but that's the reality. I would do that. (laughs) But, but, But it's interesting that when you come to the New Testament, you find zero about the land of Israel. Nothing. Not a peep. Not an illusion. Not an inference. Not a deduction. Nothing. Once Jesus comes to the land, the physical land, God is done with it. The land of Israel was a little tiny spot on the earth for the Messiah to come and bless the world and then to give his people the bigger inheritance, which is the world. And so Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the land of Israel. No, the meek shall inherit the earth. Mm -hmm. Now turn to Romans 4.13 real quick, because this is where I think you really see it. Romans 4.13. Somebody read for us. Naz, would you read Romans 4? Read Romans 4.13-15, I guess. But especially verse 13 is what we want to focus on. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offsprings that he would be heirs of the world did not come through the law but through righteousness of faith. For it is the for it is the abhorrent of the law and who are and who are to be the heirs of faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath but where there is no law there is no transgression okay good so notice that Paul is speaking about the faith of Abraham and how we are justified by the same faith through the same Christ Mm -hmm. and that it's not the law that Israel had and it's not the people under the law by law keeping to get that that inheritance. What does Paul say the inheritance is? Does he say the land of Israel? He says the world. He says the promise that Abraham would be heir of the world was given to him. Now if you went back to Genesis Mm-hmm. You would never find anywhere where Yahweh says to Abraham, I'm going to give you the world. What he says is, I'm going to give you the Eretz. Eretz. Now, Eretz Yisrael is the land of Israel. And God initially, in that initial fulfillment of his covenant promises, had a land promise. But the word Eretz in Hebrew is also the word for earth. It is both land and earth. And you can see that even in that word itself, you have that double fulfillment, the typological and the realization. Mm-hmm. And you know where you see this is in the Sixth Commandment. In the, in, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, it's children, obey your parents in the Lord for uh, this is right. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. When you come to Ephesians 6, 
it says that you may live long on the earth. Now, I don't think that the apostles are changing scripture. What they're seeing is that the promise was bigger than just the land of Israel, that that was just a stepping stone to the realization of everything that we get in Jesus. So you can see there how there's a spiritual realization. Why is there a spiritual realization? Because Jesus is God. Because he is an eternal being. And when an eternal being fulfills temporary promises, they come out on the other side with eternal realizations. That's why. In one sense, circumcision never stops. It gets put on an eternal being, Jesus, when he's circumcised on the eighth day. And then it is realized in him at the cross when he's circumcised. Paul says his death on the cross is a bloody circumcision. So when an eternal being fulfills temporary things, they become spiritual and eternal. They go through him and come out on the other side. And then we who have faith in him on this side, who are united to him, live in that fuller realization in the new covenant. Now I'm going to stop, because that was a lot to dump on you. I haven't touched on Romans 11. We haven't really picked up much on Galatians 6. Questions? Pushback? This is the place to do it. So far, so good. But yeah, you believe this. <laughs> <laughs> Two years ago, you and I, you know that I said, I, I can't, I'm not there. I don't get this. You know, because I was a MacArthur guy. I got a degree from a dispensational college, and I was hook, line, and sinker, dispensational, until, and the land in Israel, and church in Israel, when I came here, I had real problems with that with you. Mm-hmm. And I've been convinced by the text, not by you, but by Yeah, and I had been taught this when I was a boy. I remember my dad telling, telling my sister and I, you know, we are Israel. And I didn't get that because I didn't get the theology undergirding it all. I got it when I was a kid, but it wasn't until after I was converted and I had friends who were giving me pushback on it. So my best friends were Baptist, young, fervent Baptist guys who were actually are much closer to where I am now. But it wasn't until I read books like um, O. Palmer Robertson, The Israel of God. This book was really helpful. You may not agree with everything in it, but super helpful in understanding the biblical theology, the development of everything in a Christocentric way. And I think also, I will say, union with Christ is a big thing that tons of people miss. That what is true of him is true of us. So if he's the true Israel, Mm -hmm. our souls and bodies are united to Jesus by faith. And it's like the shuttle going up to the space station and connecting so that people can go on and off and it becomes one. Bible used that example of marriage, Christ, and the church. By faith, we are united to Jesus so that everything's true of him is true of us. If he's Israel, we are Israel in him. So we inherit everything that he inherits. Right. Now, let's talk about where it gets difficult because I know there's hang-ups. Well, this is, as a recovering dispensationalist also. Uh, and I love my dispensational brothers and sisters. I don't want this yeah, to be a hate fest. Anyway. But. Uh, no. One of the things... <laughs> I was listening to Johnny Mac last night. So. One of the things that uh, you could go to seminary and you could listen to. No. One of the things that uh, really hit me was understanding that sometimes we feel as if the kingdom's on earth. When Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of this world," mm-hmm. so to, to say that the kingdoms here on earth, or that they're going to set up a kingdom on this earth, to me, is sacrilegious. And on top of that, to understand that. The reason that we say Muslims aren't going to make it to heaven is because they have rejected Jesus. But yet, some people say they have 
a claim to Abraham also. Well, the truth is, who really has a true claim to Abraham? The people of the faith. So the Jewish person rejects Jesus just as much as the Muslim person rejects Jesus. Let, let's talk about that. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3, mm-hmm. the letters to the seven churches. Gotcha. What Travis is saying is illustrated because Jesus says that there were... Um, Jewish people who were persecuting the church. That, the greatest persecution of the new Israel came from the old Israel, interestingly. And um, it's interesting that Jesus says there are those that call themselves Jews and are not, but who lie. They're not like these people that are like, we're really Jews. No, you're not. They're really Jews. Mm-hmm. But Jesus says, no, they're not. Because they're not spiritual Israel. They call themselves Jews, but they lie. And they are a synagogue of Satan. He says, I will come and make them bow down before you and know that I have loved you. The New Testament church. The true Israel. Because it's not about physical descent. This is what Paul says in Romans 9.6. It's not all Israel who are of Israel. Mm-hmm. It's the elect. So there was always a true Israel within the physical nation. And that was Isaac not Jacob. I'm sorry. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Moses, not Pharaoh. There was always a remnant. And Paul will say in 11.6 or 11.5, even now there's a remnant according to the election of grace out of physical Israel. So it was ultimately never about the physical physicality of Israel. It was always about the covenant promises. And the true Israel were those that had their hearts circumcised. I think when Paul says in Romans 2, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, but he's a Jew who's one inwardly, he's also talking about us. I don't think he's just talking about believing Israelites. When he said he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, he's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is not outward in the flesh, but in the heart, in the spirit. I think he's talking about us. I think he's saying we are true Jews when we are regenerate. Because a baptized heart is the same as a circumcised heart. That's the language for regeneration, that we really belong to God. Also, in First Peter, and I think it's all through the New Testament, when he says, um, you once, he quotes Hosea, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once were not beloved, but now you are beloved. Mm-hmm. Well, he's using the Old Testament language. And later, Peter will say, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a holy people. That's the language that God said in, in Exodus 19 to Israel, that they were to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And Peter says, you are, new covenant believers, have realized that because of Jesus, because he is the fulfillment of everything for us and then does for us, in us, what we need to be done. So I think, um, I think Travis is right that to get hung up too much on the earthly plane mm-hmm is what causes a lot of problems. Now, I think in the reform world, premillennialists don't just have that problem. I think postmillennialists have that problem, too, where they see the church conquering and Christianizing the world. And what they want is an earthly manifestation of the kingdom here versus a heavenly reality. So I'm amillennial because I see in the book of Hebrews, our hope is the city to come, the consummation, the land to come, the world to come, to be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom with Jesus ought to be our hope, not either a pre-mill extreme dispensational kingdom here or a post-mill Christianized world here, but to be with Christ. So I do think, I think you have a hard time reading a book like Hebrews that gives you this heavenly hope and then back up and say, but our hope is really in an earthly kingdom. Well, you can even move a step further back, which worked for me was the temple 
was a type of Christ. Yeah, destroy this temple. Right. And I will build it, rebuild it in three days. He was talking about himself. The temple of his body, yeah. Now, the fact is, he replaced the temple. Yep, that's right. He made the temple. A greater than the temple is here, Matthew so 12. why would, as the dispensationalists teach, why would the temple be rebuilt? Right, and animal sacrifice is done because he fulfilled sacrifice. He is the high priest. The veil was rent. I mean, the book of Hebrews, again, says those things were shadows, the substances of Christ. That's done away with. Even Ezekiel's temple, and, and again, O. Palmer Robertson has a book, um, The Christ of the Prophets, and his chapter on Ezekiel is worth buying that book because he talks about the dimensions of that new temple that the water comes out and it just gets higher and higher and higher and higher. And he's like... You know, a lot of dispensationalists want to say, well, see, there's going to be this rebuilt end-time temple, Latter-day Temple, and it's going to be rebuilt right on the mount. And, and Robertson almost comically shows the dimensions that it's like, yeah, it's like three times the size of the mountain. It wouldn't even fit on the mountain. That's the whole point is that if they looked at those dimensions, they would have to be like, wait a minute. This isn't meant to be in an earthly way. We're to understand this in a spiritual sense, the water being the Holy Spirit coming out from the temple, Christ being the temple, as Bill said. So looking at progressive revelation as it all goes through Jesus and then comes out to us as the new covenant church. Now, obviously, you guys are are probably going to say, you know, well, this substantiates infant baptism. It does. It does substantiate covenantal baptism, I think. That's not the point of this talk why I wanted to have that tonight. I just wanted to say that it does seem to me that if we miss the fact that we are Israel, then we have a massive portion of our Bible that we will read and be like, what's going on with the Zionist movement over there? Instead of God has given those promises to Abraham and to us through Jesus. So that, you know where you see this most fully is in the book of Joel. Joel talks, God says to the prophet Joel, I'm going to restore the years the locusts have eaten. Mm-hmm. And the locusts were one of the plagues of Israel. Mm-hmm. And remember, God, all, and they, they were a picture of the armies that God brought against Israel. Like Babylon came in like an army of locusts. And God says, I'm going to restore the years the locusts have eaten in Joel 2. Well, where does Joel 2 get quoted in the New Testament? At Pentecost. Yeah. And Peter says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And it has nothing to do with the physical restoration of national Israel. It has to do with the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David and the raising up of the new covenant church. One of the places that you guys could go to to say, well, what about this is Matthew 16, where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's a classical place where most who don't agree with this will say, well, see, Jesus says the church is distinct from Israel. Well, the word for build, I think, means cause to stand in the Greek. It doesn't mean start something new. It means establish, and that's, he's establishing old and new covenant church through his death. How do we know that? Who shows up at the transfiguration? <laughs> Moses and Elijah. His death saves them, just like it saves us. When the Jews say, you know, he's calling for Elijah, let Elijah come and save him, but Jesus is up there saving Elijah. So he saves old and new covenant people, through his death, he establishes his church. Um, the word ecclesia, mm. assembly, which is what's used in Matthew 16, is also used in Acts 7 in Stephen's dying speech, where he talks about the ecclesia in the wilderness, the church, the assembly. So that language can be rightly used where Stephen is saying Israel in the wilderness was the church. Interesting also, one more place real quick I, wanna, I just want to point out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, 
Um, okay, so Corinth was not a city with a ton of Jews. There were probably a lot more Gentiles in Corinth than Jews. It was a lot like Athens. It was a philosophical town known for rhetoric and known for all of the um, Gentile um, luxuries and education. Paul's writing to the New Testament church mm-hmm. at Corinth, believers, Jew and Gentiles in Christ. Yeah. And notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, verse 6, these things became our example. Now, what does Paul tell the New Testament church? The first generation of Israel was, in verse 1, their fathers. That's our history. That's our history. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying to the New Testament church, you are part of Israel and that's your history. Those are our fathers. That's our genealogy as it was spiritually. I don't think Paul's just saying that as a Jew and as an apostle, like our fathers, not your fathers, because he'll go on and say they were all baptized, typically, Mm -hmm. and they all had the Lord's Supper and they all drank from Christ, just like we do. So there's an exact identification. One other place that goes the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, where the writer of Hebrews is warning us not to depart from Christ, to hold fast, encourage one another while it's called today, be steadfast, you know, confident in your hope. Stay steadfast to the end, trusting firmly in Christ. Don't be moved away from that. And, and the warning comes, he says, because don't be like that first generation in the wilderness. Yeah. There's a parallel because they provoked God and they fell in the wilderness and they displeased God and they didn't believe the gospel. And he actually says they had the gospel preached to them, but they didn't believe it. And then in chapter 3, he'll say, Moses was a servant in the house yeah. and Christ over the house. Because he built the house, whose house we are. I don't know how it gets any clearer than that. He says there's one house that Jesus built. Moses was in it. All of Israel was in it. We are in it. Same house. We are Israel. We are the covenant people.